Oliver Wendell Holmes said, one's mind, once stretched by a new experience, can never go back to its old dimensions. In this podcast, we are proud to present our guests, the world leaders and pioneers in the fields of neurointerventional surgery, interventional radiology, and endovascular neurosurgery. We will bring you through their personal journey and the three cases that have marked their professional career. From the very first to the very last case, passing by the most enriching and challenging. Welcome to this original format by Link Online, my first, my last, my everything. Hi everyone, my name is Nantia Sujijantararat and today I have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Adnan Siddiqui. Dr. Adnan Siddiqui is from University of Buffalo. He's a professor and vice chairman at the Department of Neurosurgery. For those who may not be familiar with your path to get here, can you walk us through what that was like and where you are now? Well, it depends on how much time you have. It's been a long path. I was born and raised in Pakistan, and I went to medical school at a place called the Aga Khan University in Karachi, Pakistan. I graduated in 1992, and I came to the U.S. I initially did a one-year research fellowship and realized I loved research. So I enrolled in a PhD program at the University of Rochester. Right after that, I had a little fork in the road, and I realized I loved research, but I really wanted to get back to my primary passion, which was neurosurgery. And so I matched in Syracuse, where I did my neurosurgical residency, and I graduated in 2005. And thereafter, I realized I loved vascular of all the different things that I'd done. I loved operating, and my mentor in neurosurgery, Charlie Hodge, told me, if you want to do vascular, you better learn endovascular. And so he introduced me to Robert Rosenwasser, and so I went to Thomas Jefferson, where I did my endovascular fellowship. I returned back to Syracuse for a short period of time, but then I had an opportunity to join Nick Hopkins, the real sort of neurosurgical godfather of endovascular neurosurgery, And so I joined his department as faculty in 2006. I run the endovascular fellowship and I run all clinical and basic science translational research for the Department of Neurosurgery. I'm also the CEO of the Jacobs Institute, which is focused on entrepreneurship. When people think about Buffalo, the lineage of Buffalo being what it is today, they think about you. Can you talk about what your experience has been like building this program? The philosophy in Buffalo has been that a vascular interventionalist really needs to be somebody who can comprehensively present all options to the patients. And that stems from Nick Hopkins, who really started off as a micro vascular neurosurgeon in the heyday of bypasses, but realized that what cardiology was doing at that point, and this is late 70s, was the future for neurointervention as well, and picked up the skills essentially from cardiology in terms of doing brachial cutdowns to get access into the vascular system. But that didn't mean that we lost the skill to deal with microvascular approaches to the brain. And so the Buffalo philosophy has become to create the next generation of trainees who are just as well-versed in microsurgical techniques as they are in endovascular or radiosurgical for that matter. So for a long period of time, I was treating, for instance, AVMs with surgical resection, endovascular embolization, and now I'm doing it transvenously as well 
as well as gamma knife. And so what that meant was that you took ownership of the patient from the time of diagnosis till the time of cure. You weaved your way through that treatment paradigm based on the vagaries of each individual patient. And you tailored your approach to what the patient needed rather than the skill that you had. And I think that's really been the essence of the philosophy. That said, we do tend to specialize. For instance, I no longer do radiosurgery. One of my vascular partners does all radiosurgical treatment. Bypasses are done by me and one other partner. We are four. So there's a variety of training and expertise that we develop. And I also do believe that while we currently don't have a neurologist or a neuroradiologist as part of our team, if we were to expand our team, that is exactly what we would get because I believe a multidisciplinary combined team is just as effective as one person who can do it all. What has been your proudest contribution to this field to date? I would say my proudest contribution has been to get the three specialties, neurosurgery, neurology, and radiology, to collectively decide on the treatment and training pathways which are required to create the next generation of interventionalists. When I started training, there was no real fellowship standard. People were trained in a whole different variety of ways. And now in the United States, we have an accreditation program through CAST, which is the Senior Society Accredits Fellowship Programs, which includes programs run by neurologists and radiologists and neurosurgeons. It also allowed a pathway through the American Board of Medical Specialties to certify individuals. And the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology, American Board of Radiology, and American Board of Neurological Surgery all signed on to one pathway. And I think it's training the next generation of interventionalists, which I believe has been something that I'm very proud of. If you have to credit only one or two people for the success that you've had today, who would that be and why? Number one on that list is Nick Hopkins. Nick has been a mentor and a friend and a guide for the last 16, 17 years of my life. I learned how to be a neurosurgeon while I trained with Charlie Hodge to become a neurosurgeon, but I really have my professional career has been entirely based on his teachings. I also learned the skill set of being a clinical trialist with him and physician entrepreneur with him. And so I think I single-handedly credit him for my professional stature and professional expertise. On the research side, I credit Shirley Joseph. She was my PhD mentor. She taught me how to do basic and translational research. I credit her totally in terms of my intellectual development as a clinical and a basic science researcher. You are, as you said, a dual-trained surgeon. How do you see the future of neurosurgery and how open vascular can fit into that picture? There is a sliding scale where I can clearly see the trends are pointing towards a reduction in the volume of open vascular surgery and an increase in the volume of endovascular approaches. 
I think that sliding scale will continue to develop with increase in endovascular approaches for open problems. But I don't think I see, at least currently, a time point where open surgery becomes irrelevant. So I think there's a need to continue to maintain that expertise because that remains a valid, viable, effective means to treat a variety of different diseases that we treat. That said, it would be ignorant of me to not see that endovascular tools and techniques are clearly becoming the mainstay of management of cerebrovascular disease. Can you talk about your journey into entrepreneurship? I think that's a very unique aspect of your resume that I'd love to get more into. So my journey into entrepreneurship really began under the tutelage of Nick Hopkins because his philosophy was that neurointerventionalists are in the trenches and they're working with all these different tools and techniques to treat diseases and so they are uniquely positioned to recognize what the needs are. What they don't have expertise in is the engineering aspect of creating solutions and then financial tools to make those engineering solutions widely available. And so his philosophy was that you don't need to be the engineer or you don't need to be the financier but you need to know those people and develop relationships with them. And so the center that he built in Buffalo is uniquely situated because it has a vascular hospital where all vascular disciplines are in one physical space where we interact with the cardiologists and cardiac surgeons and vascular surgeons and interventional radiologists on a daily basis. And then that structure sits immediately underneath a university, which is a full-service research institution with all vascular disciplines, imaging, physics, biology, located right above us. And everybody hangs out in the same space And in the middle of it is this entrepreneurship center filled with engineers and entrepreneurs who can problem solve and create solutions and then monetize them so that they're widely available. So my journey really has benefited, again, from Nick because he created this incredible work environment where without moving a muscle, I'm running into engineers who can solve the problems I'm having in the operating room and then develop tools that can be monetized for widespread dissemination. What do you think is the future of endovascular? We are still in a phase where we are essentially glorified plumbers for the brain. If something is leaking or has the potential to leak, we plug it. And if something is plugged, we unplug it. And we're getting better at it. But that has been the mainstay of everything we have done thus far. The next phase in the evolution is to start interacting with the brain as a functional organ and affect change and brain functionality through endovascular means. And I think that's going to be the next phase. So I believe we are going to have greater degree of brain-machine interface applications available through endovascular routes, particularly transvenous. I think we're going to start managing hydrocephalus through transvascular routes. We already are with venous stenting for pseudotumor or the E shunt for communicating hydrocephalus. We are starting those trials right now. And eventually, I think this is going to be the way we really start treating tumors and other sort of solid structure problems that still require open craniotomies. So I think there are a variety of different ways which will move us beyond this current standard, which is plumbing. 
So now we will go into the three questions that we ask every guest. Really, if I'm being honest, there are four questions, but we'll ask you about three cases first. The first case is what is the first case that you remember in your journey as an attending? My first case was right out of fellowship. I had come back to Syracuse and I had this cerebellar met. And as an attending, I was nervous about if I knew anything. Could I position the patient? Where am I going to make the incision? Would I be able to do a craniotomy? Am I going to hurt the sinus when I open it? Would I shred the dura? Would I hurt the brainstem? Would I know when I'm in the fourth ventricle and know when to stop? And then I started the case and that was like riding a bike. That's the beauty of seven years of neurosurgical training. All that nervousness just went out the window the moment I got started. And I'm in my happiest place when I'm in the operating room because all the noise stops and you can just do what you know you've been trained to do and do it well. So the second case would be the case that you feel is most memorable, most challenging, most career altering. Do you have something in mind that you can share with us? So there was a case where there's a patient who came with an interpeduncular fossa hemorrhage. It was a young guy who's 20-some years old, well, came in the worst headache of his life. And we did an angiogram, and he had this tiny, I thought it was a calf mal, but it was a small AVM sitting smack dab in the middle of his interpeduncular fossa and with no good arterial supply. And I thought, well, maybe I'd gamma knife him, but I was nervous about the radiation dose I'd give in that region. And while I was thinking about what to do, he had a second hemorrhage. And there was this small vein that was draining it. I thought, maybe I could go transvenous. And this is before I really knew that there was any transvenous approaches. And then I thought, maybe when I'm injecting up the vein, I could give adenosine and stop the heart so the flow is not coming at me. And that's exactly what I did. And we were able to cure them through a purely transvenous route. And it opened my eyes into the venous access to the brain. It was so much easier than trying to catheterize a small thalamoperforator and get inadequate penetration and a stroke to boot. And so it opened up my eyes to transvenous approaches for AVMs. And then I realized that Charbel Munayer had done five cases that he had just reported. And then there was this crazy Hungarian, Istvan Hudak, who had done even more. And then I invited Istvan Hudak to a meeting that I run in Jackson Hole so he could describe his methodology. And uh, I've just really gotten excited about all those different ways of treating the brain condition through the veins. And that was the first case. So the last case that we'll talk about, do you remember what the last case you did was or something that's representative of what you guys do regularly? I lead a very privileged life where I only do things I really love and almost nothing that I don't enjoy. So I'm the skull base guy. I just did this really fun doling approach to take chondrosarcoma out. That was last week. And it was surrounding the cavernous carotid. Did an OZ and, you know, extradural clinoidectomy and then lifted the middle fossa off the middle meningeal, dissected that, and then opened the window on Parkinson's triangle to take the tumor out. It was a lot of fun. The residents were going, ooh, ah, you know. <laughs> uh, so that's sort of on the microsurgery side. On the endovascular side, I think the coolest cases are transvenous embolization 
and I had a case where I brought this patient in who had a rupture with en passant supply through the precentral artery with a hemorrhage, but had made a great recovery. You know, he was a week or so out. So I said, okay, there was a very tortuous vein that was draining that AVM. And so I thought maybe I can try to do transvenous. And when I tried to catheterize the vein, I realized that the reason he had bled was because the primary vein had occluded and there was no direct route to the draining vein. So I took him to the OR next day, you know, did a craniotomy, skeletonized the precentral artery and took the AVM out. And so that again was a great educational sort of case for the fellows and the residents to say, hey, can't do it this way, you can always do it that way. And that's the complementary sort of nature of my practice where you can bring all these skill sets to bear to treat diseases. And the last question, what would you like to leave as your legacy? A multidisciplinary approach to tackling conditions of the brain. By that, I mean neurology, radiology, neurosurgery working together and controlling the destiny of the field, specifically on the interventional side. I want them to work together to have better representation in training, in accreditation, in research. One of the things that I feel that neurointervention is not well represented is at the National Institutes of Health, where we have secondary or tertiary status where we don't really have a say in areas that interest us. That's starting to change, and that's something that I'm engaged in with a few other thought leaders, I'm sure some of whom you have interviewed. I want that to be my legacy where I got the three fields to work together, and I have a little bit of that reputation, but I believe that would be the best thing I can leave behind. Dr. Siddiqui, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure.